Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. It's Thursday, June 12th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Wait, from Slate, it's The Gist? I just gave away 20 across. Crossword spoiler alert. 20 across in the New York Times crossword today was home of the gist and political gab fest. Uh, It's Slate, by the way. So I'm not a huge crossword fan. Well, other than 20 across and before today, I mean. You know what it is? It's all those little words and those overly voweled words that exist only to serve as crossword puzzles. If you went by the crossword puzzle, you would think that the Bible was mostly a book about Esau. You know, a little bit about his grandfather, Abraham, Abraham's pal, God. But, you know, Yahweh. Yahweh shows up. But Esau, an Esau book. Biggest river in the world. Definitely Edo in Japan. The Nile? A little bit. The Amazon? Almost never. So the question is, how did the crossword-doing public, or at least the crossword-doing obsessives, like this clue, this clue about the gist and slate? It was a seven-letter word for all bollocks up. C-O-blank-blank-U-S-E-D. Yeah, they were a little confused. The author of the crossword blog, Rex Brothers, wrote of 20 Across, expected this to be a TV station, not an e-mag Commenters agreed. One of the answers was Megillah. People didn't like Megillah. They've never seen it. They've never heard it. And then another commenter wrote, and I've never heard of Slate. An EMAG? Question mark. I'll say this about that blog, Rex Brothers. They did illustrate Slate with a picture of Mr. Slate from the Flintstones, who I've been working here for months. I never even thought of Mr. Slate. But yeah, he should be the corporate identity, right? And then I got to thinking, and this is true, the crossword does teach you things. What is Mr. Slate's first name? You know, Fred Flintstone's boss. I looked it up. He has at different times been named Sylvester Nate Oscar and George. George and Oscar, so he could be a Bluth. Okay, so in a dictionary, synonym for home of the gist is the guy who chiseled paychecks for Flintstone. On the show today, in the spiel, polls, 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 set to the strains of the smoothest crooner this side of Mel Torme. But the biggest news on the world stage right now is Iraq. So we did a long talk with Slate's Fred Kaplan, who had great insights, not at all predictable insights. And we're going to go right from that into the spiel, sort of giving it two segments, if you'd like. And I do hope that you like. Forces for the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, also known as ISIS, control significant parts of Iraq right now. Mosul, the second biggest city, has fallen. The key oil city of Baji is under attack. Baghdad still stands. To join us with an update is Fred Kaplan, who writes Slate's War Stories column. He's also author of The Insurgents, David Petraeus, and the Plot to Change the American Way of War. Hello, Fred. Hey. So these ISIS forces are on the march Is this a consequence of the United States pulling out of Iraq too early or leaving behind Iraqi forces too weak to protect themselves? Well, you could say it's the consequence of the United States invading Iraq in the first place. More immediately, though, it is the fault of Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki. What is this about? It's about the fact that the Sunnis 
feel disenfranchised. When we pulled ISIS out, forces are Sunni forces. Right. Sunnis are about a third of Iraq. Yeah, Shia, and they used to be in power when Saddam Hussein yeah. was a Sunni. Shiites win. All the insurgency that we heard about during the war, mm -hmm. that was Sunni backlash. As the United States prepared to pull out back in 06, 07, 08, we put a deal. Maliki promised, okay, yes, I will work out oil revenue sharing arrangements with the Sunnis. I will bring more Sunni militias into the Iraqi army. I will work out property uh, settlements in, in Kirkuk. He's done none of this. He has done none of this. In fact, he has pursued with criminal charges leading Sunni politicians. He hasn't done anything to bring them in. And so basically you have this sectarian struggle, which has been going on in Iraq for decades, even centuries, except for those decades when it was suppressed. And Maliki has done nothing about it. And this really is the consequence of that willful failure to practice conciliatory politics. Even if this is Maliki's fault, is it still the United States' problem? No, I don't think it's the United States' problem at this point. It's Turkey's problem. These guys might have gone a, a bridge too far. In, the ISIS uh, forces. The yeah. ISIS. They, it, while they were rampaging through uh, Mosul, they broke into the Turkish embassy and, and kidnapped a bunch of Turkish diplomats. Well, this is an attack on Turkey, and Turkey doesn't much like the fact that ISIS uh, is, is taking over the northern half of Iraq anyway. We could be seeing one of two things, I think. Either the start of a really interesting and unlikely political coalition that includes Turkey and Iran and the United States in the background, in other words, forces that do not want Sunni fundamentalists, or the beginning of the final breakdown of the Middle East generally. I mean, I see what's going on in the Middle East broadly as the collapse of the order that was imposed by British and French colonialists at the end of World War I. The empire is falling apart. To get their own stake in the goods, British and French created these artificial states, and they deliberately broke up ethnic and sectarian and tribal groupings so that they could control from above. Okay, after the end of World War II, this began as the colonies started to fall apart. That started to fall apart, too. It was put back in force by the Cold War. Everybody took one side, Western U.S., Eastern Soviet Union. Right, As and everyone had their strong man to back, and yeah, that was the only right. interest. That was the only game you had to play. That's right. right. With us or with them? And then yeah. when the Cold War fell apart, I see what's been happening in the last 20 years as the result of the global anarchy that is an inevitable byproduct of the end of the Cold War and no new international structure to take its place. So what we're seeing now, people say, oh, this is Obama's fault or mm -hmm. oh, this is Bush's fault. This relates to historical trends that have been going on for a long, long time. And not only that, that's the way the people on the ground see it. People think about conflicts that go back to their ancestors. I mean, imagine if you had the blue state, red state in the United States, but it was combined with religion the Civil War was still going on, and everybody was armed. Yeah, and the standard of living was and the know, standard one hundredth of, of what we enjoyed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. So Colin Powell said, if you broke it, you bought it. Yeah, well, that was the invasion of Iraq. But let's say it wasn't even the United States that broke it. Let's say, as you say, this is an inevitable consequence. You still can't let it devolve into chaos, can you? So what do you do now? Well, for one thing... 
ISIS has had a pretty easy time. They've gone into these Sunni strongholds and the army runs. Yeah. I don't, you know, Baghdad is a Shiite stronghold, and the army is concentrated there, and they might not even want to get into a prolonged fight as long as they've got Syria to, you know, this is a cross-border organization. Well, I wanted to ask you about Syria because, you know, Hillary Clinton advocated arming moderates. Did, mm-hmm. I, did I use the quotes in my voice well enough? Good Arm, Right. Arming moderates. And yeah. um, who was it? The ambassador Ford who quit. Uh, he was the ambassador to Syria and he didn't give a reason. Recently, he's come out saying we have to arm the anti-Assad forces right. in Syria. Is what we're seeing now, the strength of these forces, does that have anything to do with U.S. non-intervention in Syria? It certainly aggravates it. I mean, uh, I could ask you flat out, do you think it was a mistake for the U.S. not to arm forces? In well, Syria? at the time, there are two ways to look at questions like was it was a mistake. Look at the way people were looking at it at the time and looking at it in retrospect. At the time, from what I've been told, I think President Obama had good reason to doubt what his advisors were telling him. Oh, yeah, we can distinguish the good insurgents from the bad insurgents. And, oh, yeah, we can keep these arms under control. If we give arms to these guys, it won't go into that guy. He'd been misled by these same people before. At the same time, I have to tell you that even some of the president's aides say that in retrospect, it might have been a good idea to to give that a shot, to, to see if it had worked. Do you think that the U.S. will intervene, not with boots on the ground, but with airstrikes or in any other way militarily in what's going now in Iraq? Not in Iraq, because here's the thing. If we intervene on the side of, we might look at it as Iraq. Everybody there is looking at it on the side of Maliki. And if Maliki continues with his anti-Sunni oppression, and some would even say ethnic cleansing, that doesn't solve the problem at all. In fact, it sucks us even more back into it. Can I, can I just deal with one more problem, this business? Some people think that all this happened because Obama pulled troops out of Iraq. Mm-hmm. This drives me nuts. First of all, a treaty, a treaty was signed at the end of 2008 by George W. Bush called the Status of Forces Agreement, which said all U.S. forces will be out by the end of 2011. Not all U.S. combat forces all U.S. forces. It also said this agreement may be amended with the consent of the Iraqi parliament. Right. So when you have people saying, oh, the Iraqi military wanted us to stay. Oh, Maliki wanted us to stay. That didn't matter. The Iraqi parliament was not going to change but its vote. But also Maliki explicitly demanded the U.S. leave. That, this yeah, is, well, that, that's this the other. burnished his reputation more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. now we have Maliki. Oh, will you please come let us have some of your drones? Oh, you won't give us your drones? Will you please attack the bad guys yourselves? Well, you know, he should have thought about this uh, yeah. at, at the time when, when he was sitting pretty. When the Sunnis were willing to make a deal, they, they laid down their arms, they went into politics, they formed parties, they said, okay, let's sit down, we understand, finally, that we lost this thing, that, that you guys are, so, but let's sit down and talk about it. And he went off and, and uh, declared their political leader a criminal, chased him into Kurdistan. You know, James Jeffrey, who's the U.S. ambassador from 2010 to 2012, said, you know, there was a time when the Sunnis had bought into a new Iraq. And yes. Maliki ruined that. That's, he's absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. He's okay. absolutely right. So the last question, and I have a habit of doing this because journalism isn't a pep rally. You gave me the best case scenario, which is something like it's a necessary corrective to the anti-Sunni excesses of Maliki. Give me a reasonable worst case scenario. Can Baghdad fall? And if it does, uh, what happens? Baghdad falling, 
I don't. That seems kind of unlikely to mm-hmm. me. But you know, when when there were a few people five ten years ago who said, "Oh well, you really ought to partition Iraq," and people said, "Oh no, that would be a terrible idea." Look at India, Pakistan. There there is, there aren't too many good examples in history of, of partitions. That's what's happening in Iraq now. And not only is it a partitioning of Iraq, it, it's a partitioning by ISIS. They were expelled from al-Qaeda for being too crazy, okay? I mean, these are not, you know, what does it stand for? The Islamist state of in Syria and in Iraq and Syria. Yeah. That's what they're for, an Islamist state in Iraq and As Syria. As they define Islamist. Yeah, which is chop off the heads yeah. and... Back to the 12th so century. So this, uh, depending what happens, it, it, it the, the worst case, and I'm, I'm reluctant to say, and I don't like saying, the, the likeliest case is a further disintegration of the region. I hope that uh, Obama is on the phone with the Turkish leaders. You know, it might even be a good time now that there's warm relations over the nuclear talks going on, to try to broaden the relationship with Iran over this. They have an interest. We are on the same side in in this dispute to think about some new political alignments in the whole region. Because the other guys are, the bad guys are. Yeah, and their alignments are coming at the point of a gun. Fred Kaplan writes Slate's War Stories column. He's the Edward R. Murrow Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and author of The Insurgents, David Petraeus, and the Plot to Change the American Way of War. And that was a finalist for the Pulitzer in nonfiction. Thank you so much, Fred. Thank you. All right, Andrew, it's time for a jingle. What about? No, you don't, isn't this like where you have to say we don't have the jingle budget? Oh, I thought we both knew now that I don't. I know, don't but have this is our thing. Budget. All right, fine. We definitely don't have the jingle budget. You want to know what the so so you'll do one yourself? Sure, oh, I'll I'll fans, make up a little ditty. The fans love when you ditty. All right, this one is we could call it strolling through the polls. We could call it doing the poll stroll. You take it. Now it's time to lull because it's time for a poll. Get it? Lull like LOL. Oh, I thought it was a lull in the show. And it wasn't. It wasn't, Andrew. That was a lovely jingle. But for this segment, since we have the exquisite song stylings of Mr. Billy Vera. What did you think? What do you think, Republican voter of Virginia's 7th District, about returning Eric Cantor to the House? According to a poll that Cantor released a couple of weeks before the primary, 62% of Republicans thought, yeah, that's a good idea, and 28% said nay. Well, 13 days later, the nay has had it. As we know, Cantor lost by 11 points to David Bratt. So how did the polls get it so wrong? National Journal interviewed the pollster who blamed turnout. Yeah, but pollsters always blame turnout. And guess what pollsters are supposed to poll for? Turnout. And then the pollster also blamed the cooter factor. The cooter factor is the fact that former Representative Ben Jones, a Democrat from Georgia who played cooter on the Dukes of Hazard, had written a letter telling Democrats to vote for David Bratt to beat Cantor. The Dukes of Hazard still carry a cultural cachet? I mean, even if they do in the 7th District of Virginia... Even if the Dukes are important, Cooter wasn't a main character. goes Luke, Bo, Daisy, Uncle Jesse, Boss Hog, Sheriff Roscoe P. Coltrane, Deputy Enos, then maybe somewhere around there, Cooter. He's like the seventh biggest character. He's like Fortinbras in Macbeth. He's like Walter Peck of the EPA in Ghostbusters. Come on, Cooter. What did you think? 
What do you think, Iranian citizen, when asked, would you give up nuclear weapon ambitions in exchange for the West lifting economic sanctions? And 40% of Iranians said they would give up nuclear ambitions. More interesting is how we even know that. Israeli researchers, speaking Farsi with Iranian accents, because most of these people had fled Iran years ago, they were asking the questions. They did not lie. They just gave the name of their research center, not their country, to find out this tidbit that the Iranian regime would never have allowed out on their own. So I guess next time someone calls you to ask a public opinion question, you might want to ask, are you really calling from Tehran with a spotless Kansas City accent? What? So what did you think one of 3,066 randomly contacted Americans when asked, how's that diet going? And 55% said, I'm not overweight and I don't need to lose weight. Well, guess what? The CDC disagrees. The CDC says 69% of Americans are overweight. Gallup found less than half that think they're overweight. 18% of those self-identified as overweight are trying to lose weight. 18% self-identified as overweight say they weren't trying to lose weight. Here's the silver lining. America really is kicking ass on issues of body image, not doing nearly as well on issues of body reality. What did you think? What do you think, consistent liberals, of politicians who compromise? 82% of liberals like politicians who make compromises. And then Pew, the Pew Survey Center, asked consistent conservatives. What do you think of politicians who make compromises? 32% of consistent conservatives like politicians who compromise. Mind you, the question didn't say, what if these politicians are compromising toward your position or away from your position? Conservatives just do not like compromise and liberals do. Among other fascinating findings in Pew's new study of political polarization in the American public, three quarters of consistent conservatives want to live in a big home and drive to school or work. More than three quarters of liberals want a small home, want to walk to school and work. And the gap between your average conservative and your average liberal is noticeably bigger than even 10 years ago. But you live in America. What did you think the gap would be? Small? What did you think? What do you think, average French person, when asked what country most strongly contributed to the defeat of Germany in 1945? 57% of French, when asked in 1945, said the USSR is mostly to credit for beating the Nazis. 20% said Americans. But the last time this was asked in 2004, 20% said the USSR and 58% credited Americans. I don't know what it means. I do know the British barely budge. They're stuck between 16 and 20%. What did you think? What did you think, HuffPo, when you ran a headline earlier this month that said, Huff Polster, death penalty support dips below the majority? Wow, that's huge. Americans support the death penalty. That's been true for years. But if you read the article, it says 60% of Americans say they favor the death penalty. So what's that headline about? From deeper in the article, and it was all about an ABC poll, not a HuffPo poll, But in this ABC poll, they said that more than half of Americans say they prefer life sentences for convicted murderers rather than the death penalty. So based on that, the Huffington Post ran the bigger, sexier, slightly less accurate headline. What did you think? Another headline from last week, Huff Polster. Polls got the GOP primaries right. One quiet winner has emerged from these intra-party contests. Public opinion polls. Well, you might have wanted to wait until all the primaries were done, i.e. Eric Cantor and, of course, the Cooter effect. So what would you think of this segment? And by that I mean... 
What did you think? You want to hear the rest of the song, don't you? I would say at this moment. Oh, that Billy Vera. He is a siren. And that is it for today's show. If I said Andrea Salenzi is producer of Slate Podcasts, would that make you more likely to vote for her, less likely to vote for her, or unsure? Executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy's six-letter word for above-the-shoulder genuflectors. Bowers, Andy Bowers. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a review. You can listen on SoundCloud. You can sign up for our daily email at slate.com slash gist email. That's the place to sign up. Or email the gist at slate.com. The gist, now statistically significant. The gist, I always listen to the Thursday gist in ink. Thank you for listening. <laughs>